This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 251. Uh, I am interviewing a wonderful farmer as we continue on this series of getting to know where food comes from and how we can start to discern more and back regenerative farming solutions. Uh, if you haven't come across that term regenerative farming before, uh, it's a beautiful way of farming that uh, creates uh, all sorts of different ways of giving more back to the planet than we take. Uh, so sequestering tons of carbon, uh, increasing biodiversity, restoring healthy water systems, uh, uh, cultivating a landscape that holds on to water instead of having it be dry and run off. Uh, and uh, having it be more resistant to drought and uh, extreme weather events, which is incredible uh, given there are more and more of those in our world. So there are many different forms of regenerative agriculture, but they all operate around the same theme of protecting and cultivating biodiversity uh, and uh, improving the landscape as a custodian of it, not just taking from it to sell stuff. So biodynamics is one of those forms of farming. Rob Watson has been a biodynamic farmer uh, for over 30 years with his brother when they took over the family farm, initially much to the horror of their dad, ditching the pesticides and fertilisers, uh, and then continuing on that way without those synthetic inputs but not really being happy and then doing research to see what more could be done and that's when they came across biodynamic farming. It is a great business. The dairy products are stunning. You can adopt a bull, so adopt a young calf uh, to mow down your paddocks if you have land uh, as a part of a great program that they run. A lot of the Mungali Creek Pro, uh, products are actually lactose-free because Rob is lactose intolerant. Uh, that uh, kind of bad luck for a dairy farmer, but there you go. Uh, and it's a beautiful area that they farm, teeming with life, incredibly healthy landscape, surrounded by rainforest that is definitely not going anywhere. And, uh, and I hope you enjoy Rob's story. He came to me through uh, satellite internet, but I was actually quite surprised with how we were able to record and only had a couple of little crackles. So don't panic if you hear one of them, keep listening. It's all good. Now it is a new month and, uh, those of us who live in city areas or perhaps areas that are prone to bushfire or backburning might want to consider our indoor air quality and I think you're going to love the fact that Oz Climate is back as a uh, sponsor for September. I know quite a few of you made the most of the dehumidifier promotion we had a couple of months ago and this month it's all about the Winix air purifiers. Uh, I am literally staring at my little compact purifier that we have in our bedroom. It is a compact four-stage purifier that does up to 29 metres squared, so it's perfect for a bedroom situation. And it's actually a really good-looking appliance. You know how often things are just bulky, quite um, 
big uh, and uh, this little guy uh, looks great, tucks away in the corner and uh, definitely allows you to keep an eye on your air quality with its color rating system and also has a night function so that you don't have any light while you're sleeping but it still filters the air for you. This can be perfect as I said if you are in an urban environment, you live in a busy area where there might be heightened pollution or if you live somewhere where there's regular backburning, I know in Sydney we experience that towards um, the late July, August periods here as well. So it's nice to be able to click on an air purifier. Uh, and um, also really useful if you per perhaps live in an environment where there might be a bit of water damage, mold might be growing, maybe you can't get out or you can't remediate straight away and you need to protect yourself and uh, improve the air quality. These are some of the reasons you might want to look at an air purifier. So what the guys from Oz Climate have done for us is given us an extra 10% off their already discounted prices over on AusClimate, ausclimate.com.au. All you have to do is enter the discount low tox life in the checkout, and that can also be redeemed on phone orders. So if you wanted to discuss the room sizes that you're dealing with in your property uh, and uh, find out which would be the best air purifier for your particular situation rather than trying to demystify um, meters squared online and, and pick one, you know, just chat to one of the, the team. They're awesome. I had some great feedback from some of you guys who rang them on the dehumidifier promotion to chat through different options to make sure you got the right one for your home. And uh, that'll mean that you'll get the perfect advice and the perfect air filter. So I'm very uh, happy to recommend this product. Uh, we have one ourselves, as I said, and um, you have a few different forms of uh, filtration and purification that happen in uh, air filters and they've got lots of technical details on their website. Um, they also have a hospital grade true HEPA filtration and uh, the Winix Unique Plasma Wave technology. Now I'm not a scientist but I do know that this helps and is perfect for smoke, dust, pets, viruses, bacteria, household odors, allergies, mold, you name it. So breathe easier, sleep better, feel better. It really does make a difference, uh, I, I feel, for sure. And I know a lot of you guys have had that kind of feedback over the years as we've talked about these things in groups and, and online. So make the most of that offer and enjoy now this wonderful conversation with biodynamic farmer Rob Watson. Hello, Rob. How are you? Hey, Alex. I'm really well, thank you. That's good. I'm very excited to chat to you. Uh, your daughter reached out about some of the work you guys are doing around uh, plastics and ensuring um, a smoother path to recycling recently, which I loved because um, it's not always possible to completely ditch the plastics. Uh, and, and I think it's really important that we own that and make sure that we're doing better with our packaging and how it gets used and reused. Uh, but today we're not talking about plastics, we're talking about biodynamics, one of my favourite subjects. Uh, and uh, I absolutely loved researching biodynamics for my upcoming book uh, because it's obviously one of the major forms of regenerative agriculture and I really wanted our, our city peeps to know a bit more about those forms. And, uh, and I think biodynamics has just such a rich 
history and uh, incredible uh, incredible way of being in the world in all these different climates and areas. And it's just going to be wonderful to chat to you about that today. But before we hook into that, I always like to find out a bit about uh, why we choose to do the work we do. And in your case, were you born into a farming family, a rural uh, situation? Uh, have you always lived regionally or was it something you felt called to do? Um, I guess we almost grew up on this farm. I moved up here when I was four. And um, so, yeah, I've been here for 50 odd, 55 years. The, um, yeah, it, essentially it's always been my blood. We, we went to England a couple of years ago and we went and saw our great-grandfather's farm. So dairy farming's been our blood for, for, for centuries, I guess. So it's... it's um, oh, Wow. Yeah, so, so, so we, we, we've been um, farmers a long time, so that the, the processing factory down the road there, the, um, the, the, the tea house was the house that we grew up in. So um, we've been here since 1964. And, um, yeah, there's been a lot of change during that period. When we came out, it was just a, a run-down old dairy farm back then. No one was actually using any chemicals or poisons much. And... Um, and Dad took over and we started using it. We started using fertilisers. Everything took off. And then um, there was a gradual decline after that. So there was a huge push in production and productivity. But then the negative side effects started to kick in. And it was when we took it over in 1986, my brother and I and my ex-wife, it was um, the farm was very, very run down. And when we tried to turn, change it to organics and biodynamics, it was a dismal failure in the short term because it had really been burned out. Mm. Something really interesting that you just said there, Rob, and I often feel like this ends up being a bit of a metaphor for the word progress and how it evolved in the 20th century where um, we got all this productivity and efficiency and then we started to notice the side effects. And I think we can map that out in terms of um, people's, uh, people's health right? You know, we got all this productivity, we got all these store-bought meals and ready-go breakfast poppers and all this kind of convenience and efficiency in the way we procured and ate food. Uh, But then we noticed the negative side effects in our health. And you just alluded to the fact that that similar pattern was found in farming in the 20th century. And so, um, so do you feel that all the promises of chemical inputs, synthetic inputs, uh, GM, et cetera, were uh, like helped farmers kind of fast out of the gate initially in many cases, so it made it look like it was really going to be progress, but then the negative side effects were too big to ignore? Exactly. Um I guess you're going to see why they introduced a lot of this technology and the technology was introduced to increase productivity but also to drive down prices. A lot of farmers, uh, the supermarket chains are, it's not just supermarket chains, it's the it's driven by the end consumer who generally wants cheaper food. So by and that, that overall push for cheaper food, the instead of thinking of food as something, as healthy food, as something that's going to help people grow and be healthy it's more food is is a commodity which you've got to try and maximize the productivity from so that's the farmer's got to survive 
the uh, processors are going to make a profit and the supermarkets in particular are going to make a huge profit. So therefore, instead of thinking of food as something healthy, it's something, it's a commodity that's going to meet certain parameters. It's going to be, look nice and it's going to taste okay. But the, the most thing is you've got to churn out a lot to, to make a profit on it all the way through the, the, the chain. Mm. And and so when you had to rehabilitate your farm, um, what were some of the steps that you took and, and why did biodynamics call out to you as uh, a, a method that you were going to explore and use and develop? Uh, I guess you have to just see me back then. I had a, a sort of long hair, as, um, a bit of a hippie, <laughs> big beard, big bush, and just had an alternative way of, of, of looking at life. And I'd already always been interested in organics. And then a guy come, called Alex Podolinsky, he actually came, he was visiting up here. I just met another person who was looking into biodynamics. So he actually came and visited the farm and gave us some suggestions. And I guess with that, that was the impetus that got us started down that, that path. Um, when we started, we virtually did everything wrong because we sort of compared up here, which is um, a really high rainfall leached out. So, so we get about 150 inches of rain per year. So that's a, a lot of rain. And um, that in conjunction with the fertilizers and stuff that dad had used had really burnt the soil out. So we had to relearn how to do it because also we were pioneers up here. So we didn't know what to do. So we made lots and lots of mistakes. But then again, by making those mistakes, we learned lots and lots of good things of, of how to go ahead. So now we can take over a farm and convert it over in three years. Wow. It took us 10 years to do the same thing because it was just a lack of knowledge, I guess. Mm, it sucks to be a pioneer, doesn't it? <laughs> it can in some ways, yeah. Mind you, we're, we're miles ahead of anyone else, so it's, it's great in that way, you know? Yeah. Okay, so you say you're miles ahead of everyone else. How? Explain to us, uh, us lowly urbanites, what that actually means and, and what what signs you have and what kind of measurements you have to to be able to say something like that. Okay, so when you've, so there's a, there's a whole list of things that, that really have to be done to convert a farm to biodynamics. You've got to, I guess the first thing is you've got to get the chemistry right in the soil simply by um, using non-toxic additives like um, lime, rock phosphate, dolomite, compost, all those sort of things which um, balance the soil out because most soils have got some sort of imbalance to start with and that's usually a chemical imbalance. Once you get the chemical imbalance sorted out with, um, with rock dust and stuff like that, then the biology sort of comes in by itself and the biodynamics kicks in. So, so once you've got legumes and stuff growing naturally, then that's the, the driving force that makes the, that encourages the biodynamics to, to kick in work. Then you build up a, a top quality humus. And when you've got that top quality humus, it holds moisture, it cycles nutrients, it, it works with the whole farm environment to, um, to, have to produce pretty healthy food. Mm. And it's sustainable and that once it is balanced, it doesn't need balancing continuously. It's, 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 it's balanced for a long time. You might need minor amounts of inputs at later dates, but it's not very much. So organic farming, it's continuously adding more inputs. It's biodynamics, so you get it <clears throat> balanced out, and then it's pretty well <clears throat> set for a long time to come. You probably don't see it that way, but we sort of think of um, biodynamics as the Rolls Royce of organic farming because <clears throat> it really set, it sets you up to, to, to utilise the... Uh, I, I guess um, organics is is using um, allowable inputs, so like guano and and lots of chicken manure and stuff like that, composted 
whereas we we get this balance sorted up, then you get diverse pastures, rotational grazing. Um, you use the biodynamic preps, which which it's almost like a culture, I guess. By putting the right culture into the soil, you get the right microbes, you get the right everything in the soil to, to make the whole thing work. So it's not an easy fix, but once you get your head wrapped around it, I guess the hardest thing is training people to get their head wrapped around it because most farmers are used to putting on um, fertilisers or poisons or whatever, and that's the hardest thing is to change it in the people's mind of how to farm. And once you've done that and you've, you can see the results, it just keeps on working for year after year after year. Mm, so it's almost like groundwork to get the engine going and then she purrs like a dream. Yeah, you've got to do that groundwork because otherwise it doesn't work. Because when we first tried it, we just tried spraying the biodynamic 500 out, which is virtually cow manure, which has been buried in the cow horn for um, oh, six months over winter in a cold climate. And it just builds up humus in the soil and gives the soil structure. Right. And I guess that worked to some extent, but our soil was so burnt out and so unbalanced through the, the high rainfall and, and the fertilisers that Dad had put on, it, it just didn't respond. So then we had to, as I said, do lots of research and we, we found out a major limiting thing was calcium, which is, comes from lime, and so and a couple of trace elements. So once we got those back in balance, the whole thing worked incredibly well. Somewhere else it might be phosphorus might be lacking or magnesium might be lacking or yeah, there's sulphur. There's a whole range of things that it's usually it's not much that your soil needs, but without it, it, it just doesn't... Um, kick along mm, okay that's a that's good to understand and then you mentioned legumes um can we talk about pasture diversity versus um artificial monoculture so like i think the average city person would recognize a lawn for example with a type of grass and it's just the one type of grass but if you go onto a biodynamic farm you see a ton of different types of grasses and legumes and they're all working in tandem together aren't they so can you help us understand scientifically why that is uh healthier for the planet from the ground up so to speak okay so we'll bring you've got a diverse pasture it's not just legumes and um, grasses but it's also herbs and forbs and weeds there's a whole range of stuff in there so so um they all put something back into the soil so that they take something out of the soil and they also put something back into the soil so that they build up um, different chemical compounds, I guess, and they, they take nutrients from different levels in the soil. So something like the chickweed, for example, might just take something from the, the very, very top of the soil and it needs a high humus level, whereas something like a weed like Cydrochusa, it's got really deep roots, or a pinto peanut, which is a major forage legume, they go down metres, so therefore they bring up, um, they, they recycle nutrients from deep down. So by having that mix of, um, of of diversity, you're actually pulling up nutrients and you're pumping um, thing that, um, nutrients back into the soil as in chemical compounds that stimulate the, the, the growth within the soil. So it's, I guess from a chemical perspective, you just look at the soil as a, a medium for your plant to grow in and you feed it with, with fertilizers. Whereas from our perspective, the plants produce carbon. Some of that carbon grows into growing the plant. The rest of it's pumped back into the soil to feed the mycorrhizae fungi and stuff like that, which actually go and search out for nutrients for the plant. So it's a, it's a symbiosis in that the 
plants get nutrients and the fungi gets um, organic matter from the plant. So, so therefore it's sugars and stuff like that. So that means they, they, they both benefit, uh, but if you use lots of chemical fertilizers, that, that symbiosis disappears because the, they actually kill the, they, they kill the fungi. Right, gotcha. And um, is, 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 that, is that enough, or do you want me to keep? I can go on for hours. But <laughs> I know you could. And then, so you talked about the um, depths of various plants that you plant um, and the depths of their roots, like how far they go down, yeah. and then how that creates a variety, a greater variety of nutrients being cycled through the soil. Is that correct? Have I summed that up? Right, you, you you've done that well, yes. But then again, then you've got things like Roundup or glyphosate that actually kills. It, it's a as well as being a weedicide, it also kills um uh, the biology in the soil. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's actually an antibiotic. So therefore, by so if you get a conventional farm and they're using fertilizers and they're using poisons, you're, you're actually killing. Like you think of the soil as as a microbiome. It's the same as the exactly. microbiome in your stomach, which, which is so important for human health. By using things like glyphosate, you're actually killing the, the biology in the soil. And that biology in the soil is the digestion in the soil. So by doing that, you, you, your plants become completely reliant on artificial fertilizers. And the, the challenge with artificial fertilizers is that they'll supply the nutrients that the plant needs to grow, but they don't supply the whole suite of nutrients. So therefore, you can push a plant along with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium but it only need a whole range of things to, to, to grow and produce healthy food. So if you've got an organic system where the, the nitrogen, phosphorus, the major nutrients are produced, but they need the whole range of, the whole suite of, of micronutrients to make it work. So, so that's the only way an organic system will work, whereas in a, in a um, conventional system, it's just push it along with um, nitrogen fertilizer essentially. Absolutely. And I mean, to continue that metaphor of uh, microbiome, if you think about human health um, and us all having been over-medicated with antibiotics or a, a great majority of us um, through the 80s and 90s, um, you know, and then we're trying to take a probiotic with, say, three to 10 strains in it at best. Um, and it keeps you going for a little bit and people might notice a few changes, but it doesn't seed properly and it's not the whole suite of the probiotics we're originally born into life with and if we continue to eat organic food from the get-go. Um, yeah. I think that's the other thing about um, biodynamics. It's, it's not an easy concept to, to grasp, but it's more the life forces that underlie. So the biodynamics deals more with life forces than with biology per se, but it's them life forces that stimulate the right biology to be there. So by putting the biodynamic preps out, and then the thing is, for example, with the um, biodynamic 500, you put a golf pool size per acre twice a year. So you, you spray it out. So you're using almost like homeopathic quantities across the farm. So it's not the biology that you're putting out, it's the life forces which stimulate the biology from wherever it, wherever it is, you know? So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not an easy concept to grasp, but it, it works incredibly well. Yeah, it's it's very exciting too. And I think when 
uh, the average person's just trying to do their best to fill their shopping basket. When you get a little taste of the magic that's happening and the care that a farmer such as yourself is giving to the land that you get to be a custodian of, um, yes. it, it really brings to life that uh, that next ricotta toast that you have and you, you're kind <laughs> of a part of something a lot bigger than that little morning tea moment, you know, and I think that's really important for us. Yes. Uh, I don't think a lot of consumers actually appreciate the, the difference between conventional and organic and biodynamic farming and the amount of effort that goes in to bits of that. A few, some people complain about the price differential, but in reality, the amount of effort that goes into it's, it's the amount of effort and it's the amount of care that goes into produce that high quality food that isn't really appreciated. I don't think. Well, that's why we're here, Rob. And I think um, Indeed. Indeed. I think one of the things that's um, really beautiful about a transition towards uh, organics, biodynamics, um, really transforming the shopping basket. And one of the things that people first say to me when I work with them is, "Oh my gosh!" But you know, if I buy all the things that I buy now in the in a biodynamic form of it instead, that's going to be like three times the price of groceries. But Really, we have to re-engineer the whole connection to food in the first place. We don't need all the snacks. So that's a huge saving then and there. And then you reinvest that snack money into really high quality. I mean, if you took your ricotta, for example, and a conventional ricotta, I think it'd be really interesting to do a mineral study of uh, the mineral content of that dairy compared to a conventional dairy. I'd love to see that. Um, because when the soil is right and then all of that good stuff goes up through into the animal, into the milk, etc., cetera, uh, it's, I mean, I know Dr. Vandana Shiva has done a few studies on mineral content of different foods, conventional versus various regen mm -hmm. um, forms, and, and that's been really interesting. So I've no doubt that it would be the same with you. And then guess what? We're all better fed and we're all actually nourished. And then you don't need to grab the little popcorn or the this or the that to, and just an hour after you've eaten your meal. Exactly. The other thing is that you either pay for your food or you pay for your health later on in um, medical bills. So it's, uh, I think it's better to make the investment up front. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. So I want to then talk about uh, cattle. So obviously you are a dairy farmer, but, you, I mean, you know, most, most biodynamic farmers call themselves, you know, soil farmers first and foremost. Um, but what, why choose dairy and what is the importance of the cow in the farming system of biodynamics uh, as you see it? Okay, so, so I guess Rudolf Steiner, the, um, I don't know if the inventor, but the discoverer of, of biodynamics, Alex Podolinsky, the, the guy in Australia, that they both said that the cow is probably the most important part of the farm because if you think of a cow, it's like a, a fermentation bowl on legs in that it's got an enormous range. It, it eats grass and it converts it. It's just, it's just a big fermentation tank. That fermentation tank nourishes the cow but the, the droppings that go back on the, on the ground enliven the soil. So, so a, a cow, because of its four stomachs, is a particularly advantageous for soil fertility. Mm -hmm. So in most situations, without some animal, the soil is going to go backwards. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but it's... Um, the, 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 
yeah, a, a cow is cattle. The the, the the most the richest soils, for example, the the Great Plains of the U.S. and stuff like that. Well, that as most fertile soils are usually derived from a, a cow-based um, grazing system over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And so the cow um, like helps obviously to mow down the grasses as well. And one of the big arguments is that cows are destroying grasses. So let's actually debunk that by getting much more specific about how through rotational grazing, the cow ends up actually being uh, the champion of the maintenance of healthy grasses and soils. Okay, so every, every time a grass grows, it, it grows leaves above the soil and also grows roots below the soil. When, if it, that grass is fed off in an optimal time, so if it's, if it's too coarse and chewy, the cows don't produce that much milk. If it's too small, they um, it, it sort of gives them diarrhea. So it virtually needs to be at the, an optimal height. But when it grows up at an optimal height, so the, the, the top of the, the grass disappears down the cow's tummy, but also the roots break down in the soil. So every time you you graze a pasture, so there's um, a breakdown of roots in the soil, there's droppings go and, and urine go back from the cows, but there's also cows that are, are treading the, the residues back into the soil. So there's a lot of organic matter going back into the soil with every grazing of the cows. And by doing it optimally, you're actually building up organic matter, you're, you're building up nutrient levels in the soil. So, so for example, we've done soil tests since we've turned biodynamic over a long period of time and our phosphorus and calcium levels and stuff like that haven't gone down, they've gone up. So on a conventional sense, they say, well, you've got to continue to keep on putting phosphorus and potassium and calcium and stuff on. And even in a high rainfall area, that's not necessarily so. So um, occasionally we, we put a bit of lime or a bit of rock phosphate on, but in general, it's not necessarily at all. So it's a um, so cows, in a, when they're grazed well, build up the soil. But if they're if you just got a set stocking rate where the cows are in the same paddock all the time, they can destroy the, the, the soil. So it's the same as anything. With the right management, it works well. If it's managed poorly, it can denude the soil. Mm. And um, having researched this quite a bit uh, over the last sort of 15 years myself, just as a very interested consumer and wanting to connect to the food system better and, and you know, initially being horrified by factory farming and um, the disconnection yeah. of, of removing cows from their natural grazing and natural habitats, taking them somewhere else and chucking them on a thing, feeding them an artificial diet, etc. cetera. Um, it was really interesting to learn that before cows, because we're often told cows are a new thing and therefore it's a bad thing and we shouldn't have this many of them here, but actually before the cows were here, we had other types of animals rotationally grazing Um due to predators coming and moving them on regularly. Um, And I thought that was really interesting and fascinating that actually what the modern biodynamic and regenerative farmer is doing is actually trying to save soil by bringing a type of ruminant back to the land to help re-nourish it. And I just don't think a lot of people understand the critical importance of that. Uh, I think a lot of your statistics come from the states where cows, where dairy cows and beef cows are all fed 
um, a diet of corn silage and, and, and grains and corn silage, I guess, and a, pro a protein meal like a genetically modified cotton seed or something like that. Mm. So they're not getting a natural diet and it's, it makes the, the, the cows ill. But it also, when you do um, energy graphs and stuff like that of in and out, it's not a positive way. It, 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 it's not benefiting the environment. It creates a huge toxic, toxic um, concentrations of, of manure and stuff like that, and it's not sustainable in the long term, whereas a grazing system where a cow grazes uh, a naturally grown pasture rotationally, it builds up the soil, whereas the other system is it's got so many negative consequences, it's unbelievable. Mm. And um, you would have seen in your lifetime as a farmer uh, genetically modified crops come in. How have you um, <laughs> how have you stayed calm during that? And can you share with people some of the really detrimental aspects to this and why we should be getting a bit more involved and making sure our government knows that we do not want uh, so-called progress in that area. Yeah, I guess well, we're lucky in an area where there's not much genetically modified. It's usually grains and cash crops and stuff like that. And we're, because of our area and the high rainfall, it's mainly just pasture-growing crops. So in that way, we're lucky. But most, if you, if you buy conventional milk, most milk the, the dairy farmers feed their cows grain and that grain usually con, con, contains um genetically modified cottonseed meal or soy meal or canola meal or something like that so therefore if you're buying conventional milk you're getting the the, the, the cows are getting a, a genetically modified um protein meal we don't feed our cows any grain so therefore that that's one way that we we we, we dodge it um, and I guess we're lucky in an area where there's not many um, genetically modified crops growing around us. I think they're talking about corn and perhaps bananas and stuff like that, but that's in the future. Mm, and a bit of canola, I think, here and there. Yeah, um, I don't know if they grow canola. So, oh, we, yeah, we not up there. Grapes. Yeah, sorry, you're right. It's yeah. down more in South Australia, um, Western Australia. Yeah. 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 So, so luckily we're outside of that area, so it doesn't really affect us, but I make sure that I don't buy anything that's genetically modified because I can't. It, it's the same as the, the, the vaccines that just come out. Everything has, people don't know the long-term consequences of it. Mm. And they jump in, farmers jump in particularly because they want that they see a, a, an economic advantage to it or they're dazzled by the science. And um, it's, I, I think it's very detrimental further down the track because who knows what the, the, the negative um, side effects are going to be. Yeah, it's the same as putting fertilizer on 50, 40 years ago. Who who would have known that that marvelous response you get in the short term led led to negative problems further down the track? You know. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think? Uh, obviously, you'd talk to a lot of farmers, and you would have been to a fair few conferences on agriculture in your time. Do you think it's uh, starting to appear universal that there is? Um, uh, the, the the degradation of soil and land and water systems is is really showing across the board, or is it more that there are a few areas that seem to be more negative impact negatively impacted, and some farmers are still seeing great yields in conventional farming? I I'm not really certain. I know up here, for, for example, um, our neighbours who still use uh, nitrogenous fertilizer, they've got to put more and more on each year to get a 
the response they got years ago. So perhaps before they would have put a, a couple of bags of urea on per year, and now they probably put six, eight per acre, or I don't know, about 10 per, per um, hectare per year, which is a significant amount of, of nitrogen. And the, I guess what you've got to realise is nitrogenous fertiliser is made with heat and pressure. So you need an awful lot of coal or gas, natural gas or whatever, to actually make urea. So therefore, these farmers are probably spreading the equivalent of uh, six to 10 tonnes of coal, if you're going to use coal as an example, on their paddocks as a direct um, equivalent of the amount of nitrogen they put out. Does that make sense? So that therefore, the, you need a fossil fuel to make the urea, and that the amount of fossil fuel they, they need to fertilize their paddocks on a regular basis is about 10 tons per hectare per year. Whereas on our farms, we do it from the sun, so we use legumes. So by getting the soil in balance and getting your, your um, and by having the right um, management process, you stimulate the production of legumes. Those legumes automatically produce you all the, um, the nitrogen that your, um, your crop requires. So therefore, you don't have to utilise um, fossil fuels and you don't have to go out in the rain and put out fertilisers. It's, um, it's a win-win-win. Mm, massive win. And, um, and such a, I think, again, the average consumer doesn't realise that, um, you know, we think, oh, I'm going to buy produce because that's better for the environment than the packets. And, yes, it does, of course, eliminate one aspect of uh, dependence on fossil fuels, but if we're buying conventional produce, Again, we're still propping up the fossil fuel industry because of the nitrogen, um, the synthetic inputs. It's not just, not just nitrogen. Every so all your um, ag chemicals and stuff like that are usually fossil fuel based, mm. and then there's a the transport to get it there. Whereas it's our system, it relies very few inputs, so those inputs don't have to be trucked all around Australia. Mm. And it's the same with um, yeah. The, 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 the less inputs you've got, the, the less um, fossil fuel. In, um, that you're reliant upon, but you're right. The nitrogenous fertilizers and perhaps the phosphorus fertilizers are very reliant on um, on energy inputs. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, something that I, I, you sort of started talking about there: technology versus nature, and harnessing the sun and using legumes. Um, and someone might have heard you talk about the amount of rainfall that you have up there, um, and thought, "Oh, well, that's easy for you to do." Um, how about biodynamics in drier climates, in, in tougher climates, tougher parts of Australia? Um, I don't know. I've never really... I, I know a lot of them. We go to um, field day stuff in Victoria quite regularly, and there's a lot of farmers down there that, that farm in, in drier climates. And I, I guess when the biodynamics is up and going, you've because you've got more humus in the soil, you've got more organic matter, your soil holds more moisture, you, you, you stimulate your plants to be deeper rooted, you've got a more of a, um, a diverse pasture or you've got a more of a diverse um, cropping system. So therefore the roots go down deeper and the additional organic matter is a, is a soak for the, um, that additional moisture. So um, I'll give you an example. There's a guy called Gabe Brown in the States and he, he um, farms in an 11-inch rainfall, I think it is. And years ago, if he got a big shower of rain, it all washed away because the soil wasn't a sponge, it didn't absorb the moisture in. But after farming the way he did, he's not biodynamic, he's, he's, he's um, sustainable, I guess, biological. 
he now gets a, a, a if he gets 11 inches it all goes in the soil that doesn't get wasted and that's all available for his crop whereas if you've got a a soil that's got no organic matter and it's packed down really hard with heavy machinery a lot of that water just runs away so if, if you get 11 inches you'll utilize all that or if you've got that, that um conventional farm it'll just it just washes away so you don't get any of the ingress of that moisture so mm. it's probably much better to go down the um, organic or biodynamic pathway yeah Absolutely. And one of the um, things that people say, and I just kind of want to come back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, was why do we need the cows? Like, can't we just farm the grass and not kill animals uh, or use animals for agriculture? But what is the, you know, like you'd literally just be mowing then. And actually I was looking at an interesting study on the difference between mowing and cows and how much more carbon was sequestered when an animal grazed the land versus when you mowed the land down, which I found absolutely fascinating. It's very interesting, isn't it? So mm. if, if you think about it, with biodynamics and organics, you're, you're trying to emulate nature. You're not trying to beat nature. Yeah. So if, if you've got cows grazing, one, it doesn't cost you anything. If, if, you, if you're mowing it, you, it's um, expensive machinery cost. If you've got mm. a large acreage, you've got to do an awful lot of mowing, particularly in the, in the wet season when it's Grass is growing really rapidly. If you've got lots of rain, then you've got to drive your, your machinery over wet, soggy ground so that you get compaction, you get mud. Mm. And it's, you're just creating a job that you don't need, job and cost you don't need, which you've got cows. Not only are they they better suited up and they seem to enjoy the job, <laughs> they um, also produce a byproduct, which is, which is ideal. Yeah. It's like Joel Salatin says, you know, you want to let a pig be a pig in all their pigness and a cow be a cow in all their cowness. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. I really love. Um, and so yeah. dairy because has had. The, the, way, the way people farm with feed dots and stuff like that, a cow is no longer in its natural environment. So oh, I'm sure some days that they'd like being in the shed, but be stuck in the shed all the time, lying in their own manure, being fed a diet which the person assumes is the diet that a cow needs isn't necessarily ideal, I don't think. Because if you watch a cow, a little Jersey cow, she'll go out and she'll eat a couple of bites of grass and she'll go eat a weed, she'll eat some legumes, she might eat a bit of bark off a, a leaf off a tree. So she's selecting the diet that she needs to, um, to be a healthy, active cow. Whereas if they're just getting a feed lot and they're, they're – minerals and vitamins come out of a bag how do you know we're giving them the right diet you know it's an assumption and quite often how they feed them isn't to feed them to be healthy it's feed them to produce as much milk as they possibly can so if you look at i know in california and their feedlot dairies the cow might only last one or two lactations whereas yeah our cows keep on milking for 10 15 20 years so it's so it's the that's the longevity of the cow rather than just burning them out and then get another one because it's economically the, the way to go. Gosh, there are just so many metaphors, aren't there, with the way human health is going? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you run a cow out in one year and people drink that milk, what, how, what's that going to do to the people that drink the milk? What's, going to do, what's it going to do to their health? So if you've got an unhappy cow stuck in a, a feedlot, it's hot, they're probably getting not the ideal feed. And quite often, they don't feed them the best feed, they feed them the, the feed that's the cheapest to purchase. And then they try to balance that with minerals and, and vitamins. Is it a is it healthy food? You imagine an, an, an unhappy cow 
getting poor quality ration isn't going to produce a, a living, vibrant milk, is it? Or a cheese no. or a yogurt or whatever. It's, it's just going to be cheap. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and so is the do you believe uh, one of the reasons so many people are reacting to dairy now and dairy is being recommended to move away from is more about the how of the dairy being produced than the what? I, I think it is because if, if you get a, a, a cow on a biodynamic farm that's eating pasture and that pasture is a diverse mix of herbs and legumes and stuff so the cow's got a, a choice of the food that it can eat, it can select that herb, it can dodge that one, it can, it, it, it's actually selecting its own medicine and it's it's out grazing and occasionally when it's really wet you feel sorry for the, for the poor things but I think they much prefer to be outside than be stuck in a shed all all the time. So they're 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 at, they're at grazing eating the right stuff, and then that food, for example, when it goes into our processing factory, that milk is then um, minimally processed. So we, we take a great deal of care to produce the milk, and then when it goes into the into the the, the factory, it's um, it's gently pasteurized because it's got to be pasteurized. It's not homogenized. We don't pull the milk to bits and then put it back together again. So it comes out the other end as perfect as we possibly can well i can tell you it's perfect because you your yogurt the greek yogurt specifically has been voted my family's favorite yogurt of all time um it's bloody good stuff it's it's a a great yogurt it's just um it's we make it and then we do an old-fashioned way we jerry drain it through cheesecloth to take some of the moisture out so it's it's got got no powders added to it it's got it's just milk and culture Mm. and and drain to a cheesecloth it's just so simple and so nice I, I love it yeah yeah and how do you decide what cultures to add because that's obviously another suite of options um there's a whole there's a quite a few big um culture companies in the world that um that supply different cultures for yogurts and cheeses and we got that one from chr hansen which is a danish company i think mm-hmm. and we trial a whole range of them and that was the one, our favourite, so that's the one we went with. Mm. And it, really interesting, I was having this chat with our Low Tox Club members um, a couple of months ago actually and someone said, I'm trying to figure out why the heck I feel better on some yogurts and feel absolutely awful when I eat other yogurts. So the culture that gets added is really important. Uh, one of the things I think that the biggest problem with, with yogurts is that a lot of Greek yogurts aren't actually, it's not drained or it doesn't go through a centrifuge. It's actually that they add lots and lots of milk powder mm. and then they homogenize it at a really high pressure. And that high pressure virtually scrambles the proteins. And so what you get is a really nice, smooth yogurt. But I don't think it's very, very good for you because homogenizing at that pressure, or usually it's a double homogenization, really knocks the milk around. So while it's ah, so the protein is denatured milk, and then becomes harder to digest. Quite, quite possibly because uh, even when you, you cook yogurt, because you usually cook yogurt up to about 85 degrees to help denature the protein a little bit because otherwise it doesn't set into a, a nice firm yogurt. It's almost like a junket, I guess. But, yeah, but the, the homogenization really creates adversity. Who knows what effect that level of homogenization has it is a cheaper way to go and it's a much faster way to go but um yeah it's not my preference (laughs) no obviously not so i i have a little question um 
not for myself here, but just for people out there, because a lot of people think cows get treated really badly um, and uh, have a whole bunch of hormones and poisons and antibiotics added to them. And, uh, and obviously in biodynamics that doesn't happen. Um, how do you maintain the health of your cows um, under your care during their lives and, uh, and avoid having to use, um, I guess, uh, conventional inputs into the cows in terms of antibiotics and hormones, et cetera? How, is it just the fact that they are in a brilliant system that keeps them healthy and that avoids the need for all of those added um, interventions? I think it's exactly the same as human health. If, if you look after your health or the health of your cattle, they, don't, they need minimal inputs because I'm 62 and mm. I feel really, really healthy. I don't, need, I don't need to go to the doctor, whereas so many other people go to the doctor on a regular basis. They take the antibodies, they take this, they take that. And for me, it's not necessary. And for our cattle, it's not necessary. So we do use um, homeopathy a little mm-hmm. bit, but yeah. a, a healthy diet, cows are out in the fresh air uh, I guess the biggest challenge we have at times with calves in our wet environment mm. the, the cows themselves you have might have a little bit of calving problems but quite often that's by having by selecting the wrong the right um bulls mm-hmm. yeah smaller bulls it's smaller calves it's not really a, a, a huge hassle so yeah and with um, mastitis which is a another infection we use homeopathy and stuff like that which helps control that those are those illnesses mm. amazing uh, but the other i guess, things i guess we get is is ticks and flies because of our tropical environment so um we've got fly traps we sometimes spray essential oils on the cows for the ticks and flies mm-hmm. um we, we i love it the cows <laughs> that's so, so cute yeah, they get their own little essential oil blends beautiful <laughs> yeah yeah so sorry it's um it's um, tea tree and a little bit of eucalypt and sometimes you can use lavender and stuff like that. They, everyone's got their own little mixture of stuff they use and um, it seems to work there. It doesn't last for a long time. It's not a, but you say you've got to milk the cows twice a day. So when they come in, you, you spray a little bit of this um, pretty smelling um, essential oil over their back mm-hmm. and it's, it's usually diluted down with an oil of some sort and um, flies just go away. They're, they're back. Some of them are back that afternoon or that, the next day, but yeah, you just do it every day and it, it keeps them down. And it keeps the cows comfy. Yeah, I love it. I love it. That's so cute. Um, I I, yeah. uh, I I wanted to ask about the um, the life cycle of a cow uh, in in dairy farming, and can you give us a little bit of transparency on how that's handled, how the end of life is, and and why and when? Um, because I think a lot of people who choose to eat dairy or have an omnivorous diet and eat meat, um, you know, as ethical consumers, we want to start understanding more about the system we're a part of and we're eating from. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that the first thing, the difference between dairy and meat is that a cow actually dies to produce the meat, whereas with a dairy product, a cow might get 10 lactation, so she might be 12, 15 years old, before she gets to end of life. The end of life contract isn't very good. It's usually they usually go to a, a meat processing plant because you can't really you can't really keep all your old cows. Actually I went to a um it was a Hare Krishna place but years ago we went wolfing. I went to a Hare Krishna place down near Malambimbi and 
It had started off as a dairy farm. They kept everything, and after a while, they they had to get rid of the dairy because they didn't have any room left for any of the cows because they kept everything. So it's got to be a, a balance of um, of it's mainly the the females that we keep and some bulls. So the younger the, the males, we, we we try to find a home for, or we we try to grow them up for beef. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. And so, so ethically, it's, it's not ideal, but it's it's the the best we can do. Mm. And you know, I've been thinking about this, and I interviewed someone who was very connected. Teachers. Um, uh, spiritual sort of guidance towards um, the natural cycles of life and better connection with animals and plants and all things. And um, yeah. she talked about her connection to animals and I asked her a frank question on whether she was vegetarian because of that. And uh, and she said, no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm, But I am very grateful and when I take something from our system, I make sure that in some other way I give something back somewhere so that there's always this beautiful exchange of energies um, in the universe. And I was just like, wow. Fantastic philosophy. Yeah, mm. yeah that, that, that's, that's, that's really nice in that I think some of it comes back to a fear of death. Mm. And, the, and the thing is, death is natural. Even I'm going to die apparently. So <laughs> no. if everyone everyone turns over and stuff like that, it's it's um. It's just going to be accepted that death is part of life. And, um, yeah, it's as simple as that, I guess. Yeah, I think I think it might actually be. And I think because we have um, started to become so traumatised by death, largely because we've probably disconnected ourselves from rituals in the West, I would dare say yeah. that's a part of it. Um, yeah. I-, I find it interesting how... Uh, how how we all fit sometimes. And I think back to the big herds with the predators, you know, keeping the herd in check and keeping the numbers in check. And maybe that's the modern day farmer doing that same thing. So we need the herds to keep yeah. the soils grow, you know, soils thriving and carbon being sequestered in regenerative ways. Um, but we also need to kill because otherwise we can't keep everything. It's like... You know, it's it, like trying to keep every human alive until there are a hundred and it's yeah. just, we're going to have problems. I guess it comes back to that predator-prey relationship of on the prairies and stuff like that. There's always wolves or, or something or lions around the, the end eating the, um, the the weaker, older animals or, or the young animals. So therefore, there's always been this predator-prey relationship. And with farming, it's, it's an artificial system, but it's still... Uh, a way of making the whole thing work and again driven by economics i guess yeah. it'd be nice to keep all our um all our unwanted animals but i think it wouldn't be um sustainable in the long term and sustainability is the name of the game and everything isn't it? it it really is if we want to all stick around so um i just wanted i wanted to ask you rob about um the sustainability of running and managing a farm and actually keeping it profitable, uh, how has that experience been for you as um, as a biodynamic farmer? Okay, so it's it's really quite challenging in that because of the, the biodynamics, we haven't got the same yield as a farm that pours heaps of um, synthetic fertilizers and poisons on. So we've had to 
luckily we're our own processor as well. So therefore we can pay our farmers what it's what their milk is worth. So we usually pay our farmers, so say our farmers probably get paid 85, 90 cents a litre for the milk, whereas in a conventional farm it might be 50 to 60 or perhaps 65, depending on on where you are in Australia and, and what your um and what your deal is with the processor. But um so you've got to pay more, but in reality. The, the, the advantage of, of conventional farming is you can make pasture almost immediately by just putting um, a nitrogen fertilizer on and then two weeks, three weeks later, you've got, you've got feed. Whereas in our system, you've got to start, you've got to think six months or eight months ahead to plant the crops or, or to do whatever so that you've got that, that, that feed coming on. So you might have to make hay or silage. The other advantage of a of conventional farming is you can just buy in hay from virtually anywhere. You can buy in silage. You can buy in grains and protein meals and a whole suite of things which isn't available to us, which is which is good in that they're very expensive. But by the same token, it gives you the flexibility to farm in a much easier way. But it's it's not a it's not a better way. So. Um, so sustainability is important from a profitability point of view, but it's also sustainability of the environment because we're not putting the poisons and chemicals on. You haven't got runoff into the into the into the forest. You're not. Um, you haven't got spray drift. You haven't got um, oh, heaps of different things. And also, what we're trying to do is keep our the family farm alive because everything's getting corporatized. And with a corporate farm, the love of the land. Sort of disappears because it, 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 the corporate's usually driven by profitability, whereas to say, well, it's um, it's still, most family farms are still profit-driven. They also love their land and they want to improve their land for future generations rather than just make a short-term monetary gain. Yeah, got it. Does it answer your question? Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And can I ask you, I'll ask you a, a final question about um, farming as a whole and what you're hopeful about in chatting to fellow farmers and, and what you're seeing as a bit of a, it feels to me like there's a turning tide where more farmers are asking questions about how they can, uh, you know, have healthier landscapes, build resilience, especially in countries like Australia over in California as well where, we're very affected by dry dryness and harsh um, harsh uh, drought times, um, and uh, I wanted to know from your perspective in chatting to fellow farmers whether you're feeling that as well, and whether you're thinking this is actually a really exciting time in farming with more people asking questions than ever about how to do it better. Yeah, I guess the best way to answer that is. One of our farmers I was talking to him last year, and he said, since he's changed over to biodynamics, he has never enjoyed farming more. Because in the past, it was the economic, all he was thinking about was surviving. And once you go into the biodynamics and you see what you're doing for the environment, you see the healthy food you're producing for the consumer, and you get enjoyment back into what you're doing rather than the stress of just doing a job because it's it's a job. Mm. Does that make sense? Yep, 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 absolutely. So, and... so um, go on. No, no, you go on. Go for it. Okay. I've lost my train of thought a little bit. But, yeah, farming has got to be enjoyable and it's got to be something you've got a passion for. And I know a lot of young people 
don't necessarily want to go back on the corporate farm because it's just it's like mining you you you're mining your soil fertility with um with, with, with large machinery and synthetic fertilizers and poisons to produce an unhealthy food whereas with biodynamics you know you're producing healthy food you know you're improving your soil to the best of your ability you, you're quite often planting trees you're looking after um creek banks and you're doing so much stuff to improve land for future generations so it's something that's enjoyable rather than making money for the sake of making money isn't my goal and I think a lot of people think the same way. Mm. So it's it, it helps you find a deeper more grounded kind of sense of purpose connected to something bigger than you are is that sort of exactly purpose is the word and bigger than what you are is exactly the, the right words it's yeah it's um yeah, it's it's purpose. That's what it is. I love it. What a beautiful note to finish on. Rob, thank you so much for your time yeah. and giving us a window into your uh, your way of farming, uh, why you believe biodynamics um, to be, um, you know, the best. Let's just say it. It's your favourite. <laughs> I'm uh, saying it, it's, it's, the best. It, it, it's another way of, of, of looking at farming and um, it, it wouldn't um, appeal to everyone because, People can't understand it. So we, we go to school and we learn a certain way of, um, of looking at the world. And then if a, a, an alternative way comes up, some people are willing to, to bounce in and explore it and other people just can't see how it could possibly work because it's not what they learnt during their educational period. So, um, yeah, for, for us, it, it's, it's the best way to farm. For others, or perhaps organics or perhaps sustainable or biological is a whole way you don't have to come to the extreme that biodynamics is, but yeah, you've got to step away from that conventional role where you just just own the world. Yeah, well, I think I think we're all starting to realise that. So thank you for playing your part in that and uh, for helping show us and maybe some other farmers listening the way. Thank you very much, Alex. I enjoyed that. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27, and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the Explore tab and you'll see Join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.